This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by The North Face, telling stories of women pushing the boundaries of exploration, like ultra runner Fernanda Maciel. My name is Fernanda Maciel. I'm ultra runner. I run in high mountains. Fernanda Maciel holds the speed record on Aconcagua, the highest mountain in North or South America. And she used that summit bid to help raise awareness of the National Park's trash problem. She also holds the fastest known time up and down Kilimanjaro and used that to help the Kilimanjaro Orphanage Center. She's also an environmental lawyer, so it's safe to say that she feels a deep need to do good in the world. And she says it's because running is kind of egotistical and selfish. And I feel that uh, I need like, to share with the others like this passion, and I need to share and to help others, if I can, with my sport. Fernanda has won a lot of races, but she says it's still difficult for her. She runs on the verge of giving up. At her most recent race, a 100-mile ultra, two weeks after setting the Kilimanjaro record, she struggled the whole way through. But that was, for me, like the hardest things that I've done ever because my body wasn't prepared for that. It was so difficult, she says, and the terrain was so rugged that finishing the race was going to get her home faster than being picked up by a helicopter. Then I thought, well, I think it would be faster if I run to the hotel, to the finish line, because the hotel is just beside the finish line. (laughs) With that kind of grit, it's not surprising that lots of people consider Fernanda a role model. And this spring, through their Move Mountains initiative, the North Face is dedicating itself to telling you more stories of relentless and unexpected female explorers who inspire, prepare, and mobilize the next generation of women to push boundaries. Find out more at thenorthface.com slash shemovesmountains. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. When it comes to the ultimate expression of sport, the thing all the weekend warriors dream about, climbers have K2. River guides have the Grand Canyon. Surfers have mavericks. It's a wave that seems to demand dramatic musical accompaniment. Traveling across the Pacific like a freight train from thousands of miles away, colossal waves are on a collision course with the northern coast of California. These are the waves that call adrenaline-seeking surfers from around the world. Quicksilver held the first surf contest at Mavericks in 1999. They called it Men Who Ride Mountains. The name has changed over the years. It's currently Titans of Mavericks. But the contest has continued to be men riding mountainous waves. No women were invited until last year. For the first time in history, Mavericks is adding a women's heat. But some female surfers say they are still fighting a wave of sexism. And let's actually not give too much credit here to the contest. The heat was added after the California Coastal Commission required Mavericks to include women in order to get a contest permit. But long before women were invited to the competition, they were surfing Mavericks. Sarah Gearhart was the first. She caught her first wave there literally weeks before that inaugural contest in 1999. She wasn't a professional surfer. In fact, she had just started a PhD in chemistry at UC Santa Cruz. Today, Sarah is a professor at Cabrillo College. Outside contributor Stephanie Joyce caught up with her recently while she was on spring break, but it wasn't shaping up to be much of a break. Yeah, I have surfer's ears, so I need uh, both of my ears to be chiseled out, and I'm gonna do that on Thursday. I don't even know what that means. What, is it, what does it mean to be chiseled out? If 
people, humans, are in really cold water, then um, there's a bone that's on the ear canal that lays down and eventually closes off the ear canal to protect the, the ears. This probably goes without saying, but big wave surfing at Mavericks is not for the faint of heart or apparently for people unwilling to have their ears chiseled out. It's not tropical beaches and bikinis. It's cold, the waters are sharky, and wipeouts can lead to broken boards, broken bones, or worse. It's not the kind of sport you take up unless you're someone who can handle a little adversity. Sarah Gearhart can handle it. In fact, she seems to thrive on it. What was it that drew you to big wave surfing? There's the social component. Uh, I I did have a lot of negative energy from people, men in the water and small waves and on the beach and got a lot of heckling, you know, like, oh, you're a chick, you can't surf. And what I found is that when I went out into bigger and bigger waves, all those people, all those men who were naysayers and who were kind of mean were on the beach, kicking dirt. I could leave everything on the beach. I could leave how crazy life was. I could leave poverty. I could leave illness, all my worries, my financial worries. I could leave all my chores. You know, being out in in bigger surf requires so much attention and so much focus. It's really um, kind of distills life down to its experiential essence. And just for those brief moments in time, maybe an hour or maybe, you know, 10 seconds on a wave, it it was just the kind of thing that kind of liberated me so that I could go back to the beach and face life. Growing up, Sarah's life wasn't easy. Her mom, Nancy, suffered from severe muscular dystrophy which ravages the body while leaving the brain intact. She was in a wheelchair by the time Sarah was three years old. And Sarah's dad was a merchant marine. He'd be gone for months and months at a time at sea. That left Sarah and her older sister caring for their mom. Getting her out of bed, giving her, you know, helping her on the toilet or bedpans or food or everything. You know, she was quadriplegic. That means she couldn't like really even lift a finger. Um, There was no one else to help her. She didn't have family to help her. And we didn't have money. So it wasn't until I was probably in high school that she started getting in-home supportive services. Um, And I don't know why it took so long for that to happen. But um, yeah, there was was nobody. So we, we took care of each other. Even though her body was crippled, and she was in an, a kind of a bad situation. And circumstantially, um, she had this huge heart and she had this really deep faith that there's a loving God and there's hope and there are miracles. And so she really brought that to me and embraced me and spent just hours talking and listening and snuggling and um, gave me everything that she could um, with her, within her capacity. Do you remember becoming aware of your family's financial situation as a kid 
in any particular way? Mm, definitely was harassed a lot as a kid. I was, um, you know, just really targeted for being stinky. And I mean, I probably was. I don't know that I bathed, <laughs> so I don't know. But um, I was, it was about like fourth grade, about nine, ten years old, when uh, it was very apparent that I just was poor and was not going to fit in. I came to school without food. I wore the same clothes every day, and I was just a target for um, bullying. Um, and then just, you know, the reality is like, okay, what are we going to buy to eat? Well, we can afford potatoes, and we can afford pasta, but no sauce. So that was that was just the reality. That was just that's the way it was. When Sarah was in middle school, her mom got a master's degree and was able to find a job working as a drug and alcohol counselor. The income helped, but things still weren't easy. They ended up homeless Sarah's freshman year of high school, living out of her mom's van and then in a hotel. Her parents had divorced by then, and her dad had largely abandoned the family. But for her 13th birthday, he bought Sarah a surfboard and a wetsuit, and she started to spend a lot of time out in the water. Were you immediately hooked? Hmm, that's interesting. I had an, a love-hate relationship with surfing. One, I the equipment I was riding was terrible, so it was very difficult for me to learn. And I was on my own and just kind of thrashing around in some, you know, pretty brutal conditions. And so sometimes I, I would get really frustrated and just, ah, I never want to surf again. And then I'd be back at the beach, I'm like, I'm gonna try it again. I'm just gonna go again. <laughs> I'm gonna see if I can catch a wave. Uh, so I wasn't hooked immediately, but um, I was definitely immediately hooked on the ocean. Um, I loved the fact that it was a place of freedom, you know, the, the relentless crashing of the waves and going under them and kind of bringing focus in on the moment and the sounds and the, you know, the sights the way it smells when on a, on a big day, it's actually it's a little ozone smell. It smells kind of sweet. Um, all of those, all of those experiences. You know the way that the sun sparkles on the water and it looks like a million diamonds. You know that definitely hooked me immediately. And and surfing was a way to have to have that experience and it be part of that experience. So I kept at it. And then eventually, when I did figure out how to stand up on a wave and go down the line, I mean, the feeling was just like flying um, on water, you know? And I just kept wanting that feeling over and over again. When Sarah started college, she was able to move out and didn't have to take care of her mom on a daily basis anymore. On a school break, she decided to go to Hawaii to surf. She'd met Ken Bradshaw, who was one of big wave surfing stars in California. When she went to Hawaii, she met up with him again. He became her mentor, and also for a little while, her boyfriend. That was a really pivotal uh, point in my surfing because I had spent a couple of years before going to Hawaii surfing some spots um, that are really challenging reef breaks on the Central Coast. And I had to endure what all 
newcomers to these spots had to endure, which was humiliation, which was physical aggression, which is name calling, um, and kind of a scary situation to be with these people that were really angry about my presence and about any, it didn't matter if I was a girl or a guy, they did this to everybody. And so I, I kept showing up, kept showing up. And eventually they, Hey, Hey, what's your name? Oh, who, what's your story? And then eventually those guys, um, really started bringing me into their group and they were welcoming. I just had to, you know, make it through the hard part first. Um, so, so the, that crew on the central coast, uh, really did embrace me as I, I um, was surfing there, but they weren't surfing the biggest waves. And so when I wanted to surf even bigger than that and even more challenging waves, but I wasn't ready for it yet, but I wanted it, there wasn't anyone to come around me and say like, okay, here's how you go from A to B. Here's how you make the next step. So um, when Ken was like, yeah, I want to take you out. You want to surf big waves? Let's go. We'll go to this outer reef. We'll go to Waimea. We'll go to Sunset. And here's five different surfboards and you can choose which one you want to ride and and let's go do it. Let's go have fun. And so that was awesome. And got this pretty amazing crew, this this, um, man who was really supportive of my dreams of surfing and just, he just saw the spark, you know, and the passion that I had and and was able to provide the equipment and the knowledge to be a mentor to me. Back on land, Sarah was still juggling a lot. But for the first time in her life, it felt manageable. Then everything fell apart. How did you find out that your mom had died? Uh, Yeah, so... Um, when I was a freshman in college, uh, my mom's uh, breast cancer had come back. It wasn't aggressively treated uh, because of her uh, condition of muscular dystrophy. So it came back with like just a crazy vengeance. Um, it was a summer I was supposed to do an internship um, for my materials and coatings minor. And I had found an internship in Australia and, and she just said, yeah, you definitely need to go. And like, okay, I'm going to go. My mom was stable at the time, but she rapidly deteriorated. And she she started having, you know, organ failure. Um, But it wasn't like, it wasn't checked, um, so to speak. She was just cared for um, on her ventilator and, you know, trying to keep her comfortable and um, living, I guess, if you can call it that. and so I got a call when I was in Australia that she was um, just dying. And so I, I first flight out of there. And unfortunately, she died when I was on my way home. But I didn't know that until I got to LAX. And so I called and, um, and I just asked how she was. And they just said they'd made an appointment to see her. And I was totally confused because she was at the morgue, so. So yeah, just so bereft, you know, just so grief-stricken. And uh, I I had to take some time off of school. I just couldn't go back to school. I was at Cal Poly Slow, and that's where I'd grown up with my mom, and 
And so I kind of quit surfing and I just kind of didn't know what to do, you know. <clears throat> I didn't have any money and was barely making it financially and paying rent and trying to go to school wasn't really going to work. So um, I just thought, okay, I'm not going to go back to school and I'm going to have to get out of Central Coast because I can't be here because this is just way too painful. Um, so I went to Oahu and um, I lived with Ken and um, spent three months there and just kind of got my vision back and realized, you know, um, my mom is, has got my back and she, she taught me to live life to the fullest. And I certainly wasn't living life to the fullest, um, at least not to the capacity and the gifts that had been given to me and the desires and the dreams that I had. And so I just had to, you know, tighten my shoes and go back and finish school and try to maintain my head above the water because it mostly felt like I was drowning with a little gulp of air every once in a while. Sarah has always turned to faith when things have gotten hard. It was a faith that she shared with her mom. Faith in, um, faith in God and in particular in Jesus was very important for our survival. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of faith in the world or even in our own selves, right? I mean, my mom's body was rebelling against her and then I had asthma. I I spent a lot of time in the hospital and just, yeah, I was really sick and, until I was about 14. So those formative years, was sort of like, well, nobody's showing up and my own body isn't showing up. So how, like, where's the hope? It definitely came through recognizing that, that Jesus was an incredible, not only human being, but we believed uh, the son of God, somebody who was humble and powerful and um, was a total punk. I mean, went against every single stereotype. He was the first feminist of his time. The fact that he would even engage with a woman and say, like, you're worth something against all of the establishment was incredibly powerful. And so having that understanding, that recognition, it gives me a lot of um, internal, um, I guess, strength uh, to keep going. Yeah. Sarah surfed Mavericks for the first time in February of 1999. She had just moved back to California with her new husband, Mike Gearhart, who'd been part of the surf crew in Hawaii. She had been thinking about surfing Mavericks for years and had even paddled out a couple of times, but she never felt ready. I'd experienced Mavericks and really gotten slapped around trying to paddle out. I'd seen how terrifying it is. And so I just paddled out with the just open expectation of whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And, and I was just kind of fooling around like, hey, is this where I sit? Is this where I go? And and I was talking to um, I, a guy, Colin Brown, who's um, become a, a lifelong friend of ours. And he was just saying, actually, this is the perfect spot. And actually, here comes a wave and you're going to catch it. And so I spun around and caught a wave right then. And 
um, yeah, that was the first wave and I was completely blown away. It was such an incredible experience. And I kicked out and I said, Ooh, I want more of that. <laughs> so, so that's what I, I went and got more. Did, did you go back for another wave right away? I did. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, um, the next swell that broke, um, was in March and, uh, my husband and I paddled out together and it was kind of big and stormy and it wasn't crowded, which was nice. And uh, there was a photographer on the cliff that I didn't notice, which is good because I actually don't like being in front of a camera. And so I just was able to go out and kind of free surf and, and got some more waves that day and really amazing experience. Were you prepared for the attention that you got after the photographer captured you surfing Mavericks? I was absolutely not prepared for the attention that I got from surfing Mavericks, not at all. And it just, yeah, I mean, I had a phone call or a phone, a message on my phone when I got home from that session that day from, um, from Surfer Magazine wanting to do an interview. And I was like, how the heck do they even know I got a wave? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't prepared for the attention and I actually didn't want it and didn't really know how to handle it. At the time, there was a... Um, a, an online forum called Agroville and uh, a lot of people had pseudonyms and so that you could hide behind anonymity and you could just rip people apart if you wanted to. And a lot of people started ripping me apart right after that. What were they saying about you? Just that I was stupid and I couldn't surf and, and I was going to get worked and blah, 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 whatever, come back and just... Whatever. I mean, I, I read a couple of comments and I can't tell you anything else because I never read it again. I don't know. Did you get positive feedback as well from people? I did get positive feedback. Sure. Yeah. A lot of people were really, uh, really excited um, to see that a woman had surfed. And the interesting thing is even the positive feedback was difficult to deal with because um, I've never really thought of myself as as amazing. I'm just a normal human being. And, um, and I've spent a lot of time with my face just in the dirt and yeah, I picked myself back up and kept going. But I think that, that any feedback doesn't capture all of the facets. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were recently married at that point. How did your husband handle, was he ready for the attention? So my husband has, is amazing. He's extremely strong in his own character, and he's uh, extremely strong physically, and he's a very accomplished surfer in his own right. And it was an interesting dynamic for him because people would come up to him and say, oh, your wife surfs Mavericks. Do you surf? And he'd be like, yeah, I'm just a boogie boarder. I might go out there someday. And the truth <laughs> I know. And the truth is, he's a way better surfer than I am. He catches way more waves. He's way stronger. He's been charging harder and he's been charging longer than I have. And he's he's in my in my shadows. And all in the attention that I've gotten has um has been hard because so often he's like kicked to the curb and like, oh, who are you? You know, <laughs> he's my right hand man. Yeah, I wanted to ask. I 
I understand you proposed to Mike, and it wasn't under ideal circumstances for him. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Um, we were on the North Shore, Mike and I were hanging out, and a friend of ours uh, had a trimaran, and we swam out, and, and he said, hey, get on, you know, we'll we'll sail down the coast and back. And, and Mike was looking a little nervous, and I actually had never seen him look nervous. It was super calm. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't even a ripple in the water, really. Um, and Mike was very quiet, and he started looking green. <laughs> I was like, hey, what's up? He's like, get me within a mile. I'm swimming back to shore. So he was really seasick. And I was like, wow, I don't, whoa, this is so weird. I've never seen this. And um, and I think I just saw how he handled himself and how I just kind of everything came together. And the reality is that I wanted to be with Mike for the rest of my life. And so I tucked him into bed and I was about to leave and and I just leaned over and asked him to marry me. And he was like, yep. <laughs> so, so, okay, right. Wow, we're doing it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, he's a man of his word. Yes. How long had you been dating at that point? Oh, like two months. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no, we hadn't been dating for very long. And yeah, we, but you know, it was awesome. I all of my first big wave experiences on the North Shore of Oahu were with Mike and with Ken and with this crew of surfers. And Mike had witnessed everything. We've gotten caught inside together in really heavy conditions and both kind of come up, you know, looking at each other like, oh, yeah, we're in really deep trouble right now. And just, okay, here we go. We're going to make it out of here alive. Um, he had, he'd spent hours in the hospital, you know, with just a pair of surf trunks on while I got my face sewn back together after putting it through a surfboard. And he'd been, you know, when my, when my mom died, he was one of the few people that was really there for me. Just, just in, you know, wrote me cards and like, I'm really sorry. He called and he checked in on me to make sure I was okay. And, and so I knew his character and, um, yeah, he's amazing. Mike has actually competed at Mavericks, but the competition is only held when the surf is big enough. And in the two years since the contest added a women's heat, it hasn't happened. Sarah's been on the list both years, but it's not her first time. In the early 2000s, she was included as an alternate for the main competition. I was last on the list. There's no way I was going to get in the contest, but it was definitely a nod and recognition that that I'd been out there and I'd been surfing there. And um, and I appreciated that honor. Uh, interestingly enough, I didn't feel like I was worthy of that honor. I didn't feel like I could stand up in the same waves that men could in the way that they were charging. So it felt a little awkward. Yeah. Do you feel differently now? Do you feel like you now belong out there with the men? Well, I think even now, even after being out there for 20 years, it's still a men's place, a man's place. When there are 50 people in the water and maybe there's only one or two women in the water, it doesn't feel like I belong there. But on the other hand... I have a lot of really great friends that I just love and respect, and I am excited to be with them when we're out surfing there. I'm excited to watch them surf. I'm excited to hang out with them. And so on one hand, I feel like this is 
This is my tribe. But on the other hand, I'm still an outsider. And I think that it's probably awkward for the guys when they're all having fun and they're carrying on with their banter. And, oh, here comes a woman. Okay, everybody tighten up, you know, and start acting nicer, you know. So I, I think that there's definitely still an element of outsider. And I don't know that I'll ever experience a time when it's not like that. Because it takes a long time for women to get into, particularly into big wave surfing. And there just aren't that many women involved in it right now. So, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take for that to happen. And But that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop going out and, and experiencing life to its fullest. It just might feel a little awkward. Were you disappointed that the Mavericks competition didn't happen this year? Well, I have mixed feelings about the Mavericks contest. I've never been someone who's interested in really competing against other people or even with other people. I'd rather just go free surf. So on the one hand, I'm my heart isn't set on, on the event happening. But um, on the other hand, I'm really looking forward to women kind of having their, their moment at Mavericks. Um, obviously women are surfing there and they're doing well now, but they haven't really had their moment to shine uh, in, in this competition yet. So I was looking forward to seeing that and to witnessing it and then potentially, you know, being part of it too. So, but I am definitely the oldest person on the list. So I also feel, I just, you know, like I, I'm ready to pass that torch on to, to the next generation. Sarah has two kids now and a full-time teaching job, so she doesn't get out surfing as much as she used to, but it's still a huge part of her life. She was dreading spending three weeks out of the water after her ear surgery. Yeah, I kind of need water. It's just like I've become a seal. And it has a <laughs> tiny little ear canal. That's basically what I have now. You've become part of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just put a couple of slits in my neck and I'll have gills and I'll just be fine. <laughs> That's Sarah Gearhart talking with Stephanie Joyce. This piece was produced by Stephanie and edited by me, Peter Frickwright. It's music by Robbie Carver. It was brought to you by The North Face, helping empower and inspire the next generation of female explorers. More at thenorthface.com slash shemovesmountains. We'll be back next week. <laughs>